So hello, today is Sunday, April 19th, 2020, and this is episode number five of the We Be Imagining podcast. Um, my name is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mandel. Ilan, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Khadija. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, and Stanley Munoz. What's up, Stanley? What's up, what's up? <laughs> um, you know and we're really excited. Sorry, go ahead. I just said we're pushing through today. Happy to be here, as always. Hey, well, what time is it in LA right now? It is eight a.m. on a Sunday in LA. So okay, so I'm telling you that's early on the Lord's well day. Done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're really excited here to have several guests. Um, Seda Gurses, um, and correct me if I'm mispronouncing your name, Seda. You're good. Um, and we're. Where where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Brussels this afternoon. It's 5.13 p.m. <laughs> um, and with um, Dr. Helen Pritchard. How are you? Hey, it's good to be here. It's uh, um, lovely not 8, 8 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> are you calling in from Belgium too? No, I'm, in, um, I'm just outside of London. Oh, okay. Um, and Femke Snelting. Yes, I'm also in Brussels. Hello. Hello. Um, and Miriam, I feel like I might mispronounce your last name, so yeah, please, don't bother. Uh, correct me. <laughs> <laughs> Mir- uh, Miriam Aro, is that it? Aurach. 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 Okay, I got that. I'm Abdurrahman, so I can, I can, I can work with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got the ha. <laughs> <laughs> And are we talking to you in London today? Uh, a little outside London in a city called uh, Oxford near um, uh, London. And it's uh, finally uh, not raining. Uh, so I'm really happy to do this uh, podcast outside. Yeah, thank you so much for making time. Um, so kind of the genesis of this particular episode was that Elon Stanley and I were talking a lot about contact tracing apps. Um And being in the epicenter of COVID-19 in the U.S. right now in New York City, uh, being in a shelter in is very challenging because um, of such of the density of the population. It's very difficult to socially distance unless you stay inside of your house. When you go to the grocery store, it often still is crowded and um, the masks themselves don't prevent uh, kind of community transmission. So it's very challenging with the parks closed. And I know for myself, I have children. Uh, The virtual school model is somewhat of a failure. And I think people are desperate for any kind of solution. And uh, the one kind of being proffered by big tech, um, Google, Android, uh, Google's Android and Apple, uh, the public sector seems to have kind of deferred to big tech is this idea that we would all opt into contact tracing apps. Um, And I was really excited when I saw the long tail of contact tracing kind of a discussion and document that you had on GitHub um, saying that this is a false dichotomy and a potential another way forward. And it was also exciting to see that this was the first time, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you guys spoke out as an institute publicly. Um, So I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the specifics of what you were trying to address in that piece and kind of what was the meaning of it being on GitHub. Um, And then we could move into what is this institute, kind of what was the inspiration, and what are you aiming to do? And whoever would like to start, start first. That's hard when you can't just, like, 
look at each other, no? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe say that you can, because you are the one that that, that uh, alert us, alerted us, us to this situation and started talking about uh, a project you were involved in or are involved in uh, and worried about uh, how this was going. So maybe you can give some. Yeah, maybe I can lead us like to the GitHub, uh, and then and then one of you can take over from uh, the issue that you raised there, mm-hmm. um, and and I'll just quickly explain that GitHub is basically a repository that is online. It's usually used by developers, um, but not only. By now, there are many different communities that may use GitHub to make documents that they are producing public, um, either that the public can co-edit those documents or make comments to them or raise issues with respect to, for example, if it's a technological project, um, issues that might uh, be considered by different people participating in the project or interested in the project. And those issues can be things like uh, bug reports, and I hope that we'll come back to that term uh, in a little bit. Um, As to why GitHub is relevant for us today, Um, I was contacted by uh, my colleague and friend and co-author, Carmela Troncoso, um, who had been developing uh, a privacy-preserving contact tracing application protocol. So she wasn't actually developing the the application itself. She wouldn't develop an app, but just a protocol. And she was applying ideas that we had been working on for the last, let's say, 10 years on how do you engineer systems um, that respect privacy, um, also the technical norms uh, with respect to privacy, including social norms, but also the technical norms with respect to privacy. And she contacted me because they had been part of a consortium. It was a, The consortium had a fancy name. It was called the Pan-European um, Privacy Preserving Proximity Training, uh, tra- Proximity Tracing, sorry, not training. Um, I wish we could train proximity, but we're not going to do that. Um, <laughs> And, and the consortium uh, had multiple um, teams who were coming up with different privacy-preserving solutions, uh, which, you know, from a technical perspective, you would see as positive because they didn't take a single notion of privacy and they were willing to, you know, explore the, the different models that were possible. But she felt that um, the, the, the protocol that she was working on had to go public and this consortium had to be made more transparent because there were some sort of uh, unclarity and intransparency in the governance and the functioning of the consortium. Uh, So I joined her to make the protocol public and uh, a quick decision was made to go on GitHub. Uh, For those who are interested in GitHub politics, this was maybe not the best decision, but it was uh, what we in the Institute like to call the let's first get things done moment. (laughs) Uh, And all of a sudden uh, the documents that describe the protocol, uh, including a data protection and privacy analysis and a short brief um, were on the GitHub. All of this was produced at immense speed uh, under this sense of urgency. Um, And however, what was really exciting about all of this was that a consortium that had been working outside of public purview all of a sudden had one of its design in the public. So now, uh, I mean, public meaning GitHub, uh, as I said, like public is very constrained when you go on to uh, Microsoft owned, you know, investor funded uh, platforms. uh, But let's say you can reach it through a URL. Um, And, and so, yeah, the, the, the whole thing basically was an opening to something that had been happening behind closed doors, which was 
governments talking with either companies or private initiatives, or in this case, academics and researchers, um, to build contact tracing apps outside of the public purview. Um, and so I thought, okay, this is great. And I contacted um, different um, groups to say, could you please engage? Um, especially because the GitHub, as soon as it was out, it, people were putting in issues, but maybe not surprisingly, it was mostly technical people and they were just you know, raising issues with respect to possible attacks from a technical perspective or possible other implementations, possible problems with Bluetooth and proximity. Um, and so I, I wanted to engage, um, I wanted to make sure that people from different communities engage in what was happening. Um, and that's one of the ways in which Femke and Miriam, Helen and I, who already had an institute uh, discussion going on, um, considered doing, raising the issue. Does that do a justice to what happened, guys? Is this? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And also, could we just step back for a second? And I apologize, this is my fault in introducing you without getting into kind of your background. And could you, I think one of the things that's very compelling about the response on GitHub is that you guys kind of come from uh, interdisciplinary specialties and backgrounds. Could you say a little bit about um, your work in general, Seda? Um, sure. Um, I, uh, I'm... Uh, by yeah, it's a good one, right? Like um, by training, I'm a computer scientist. Officially, I'm a professor at Technical University of Delft, um, and I have also um, been working together uh, with a number of people outside of these institutions, including uh, Femke, Miriam, and Helen. Um, either both, all all of them somehow about the kind of difficult questions that technological infrastructures raise and how we can engage these questions or like develop new forms of resistance. Uh, my work at the university, as I said at the very beginning, is very much around um, privacy engineering. And then recently, a lot of my work has had to go towards the political economy of um, com computational infrastructures. I mean, we like to call them Silicon Valley. They're not just in Silicon Valley, but um, just looking at, just understanding that, you know, as a computer scientist, I can't do the work I do unless I understand the computational infrastructures and, and the way they're shaping what we do, what we can do, and how they're shaping our, our futures. That's me. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Um, I mean, looking at the GitHub piece, uh, you guys do a lot of reframing of uh, of the question and kind of separating it from uh, epidemiology, surveillance, and public health. Uh who, who, who gets to decide uh, not being infected as the norm, extractive infrastructures, uh, maybe Miriam, Helen, or whichever of you. And if you could also introduce yourself and in your, in your background as you answer the question, could you speak to um, how this reframing was developed and like who, who is the audience, I mean, beyond GitHub that you feel like mm. needs to connect with those questions? Maybe Miriam, you want to? Yeah, um, so... Uh... Yeah, so what you said was really important. I think what, what is interesting is that we're coming from different um, places and not so much ideologically or politically speaking. I think that's what really strongly connects us, but actually uh, in terms of uh, this, this so-called uh, obsession of these days, expertise, uh, <laughs> what makes it really interesting is that we actually have very different prisms through which we look. And so my my background is in anthropology, and I've worked a lot on settler colonialism and technology. I've done a lot of field work in Palestine and and looking at uh, colonial uses of of uh, digital uh, 
media and technology. And um, from these uh, perspectives, what is immediately uh, clear is that uh, there are actual real struggles going on. Of course, there are everywhere struggles, but they have been made in, invisible in a lot of uh, neoliberal, liberal uh, context where we don't actually hear constantly about people fighting back, people striking, people struggling, but in a kind of sort of like global south or actual concrete cases of colonial uh, repression, you see resistance. And therefore it has become part and parcel of how I think in terms of who is my audience, what do I want to gain with my intervention? And so the answer to your question of like, who do we envision what, you know, having this conversation with or wanting to take this conversation to a, another level? Uh, I think it's it's the key question at the moment, particularly because we are being so alienated uh, literally by physical uh, isolation and distancing. And I think the audience is very much like common people, working class people who actually are being made unaware of the processes that are happening. As Seda already said, uh, the, the pace with which things are happening is just incredible. Like it takes people who work on this day and night, even a lot of effort to try to understand and deconstruct. Uh, what about all these other uh, people who are working in different disciplines who are not necessarily interested in the technical, uh, who are actually trying to survive day by day with homeschooling, home teaching, or basically just making it possible to pay the rent. For those kind of people, I think it's important to have a kind of, you know, uh, empowering, but also uh, clear understanding of what is at stake. And that needs to be mediated. That needs to be uh, said in clear terms. And so I think what we imagined also was to make an intervention that is short and clear and that brings different issues together so that people who are not necessarily in this IT tech or app business are also able to understand that what is at stake is beyond this small niche world. So for me personally, that is a priority. The audience being, uh, you know, grassroots uh, groups, uh, community organizers, ordinary people who are not at the table having a conversation about what is going on. Thank you. That's really helpful. And, you know, kind of as one of the ordinary people, I think that um, you mentioned the pace at which things are rapidly changing. Um, I mean, the, it was unimaginable even six weeks ago to think that all universities and conferences would be held online um, and that so much of people's budgets or institutional budgets would be going towards uh, Zoom licenses, uh, that the entire school district in New York City mm -hmm. would close down. Mm -hmm. It was kind of unimaginable. So I think that there's a level of despair and desperation for some kind of solution. And for the average person who hasn't been studying computational structures or, you know, kind of privacy engineering, um, the the contact tracing apps feels like a lesser evil. Um, can you kind of flesh out uh, why this is a false dichotomy between uh, staying home and opting into kind of uh, broad surveillance and kind of what are the options that are out there? Mm, maybe um, uh, so. So <laughs> my background is uh, uh, culture, uh, art. Uh, I work as an organizer uh, in a cultural organization in Brussels, a publicly funded organization on all kinds of uh, inventive and imaginative uh, uh, technological practices. So for us uh, to see uh, the kind of 
um, false dichotomy of staying at home versus uh, installing this app was really uh, quite shocking to see the lack of um, imagination actually about ways that we could somehow uh, together try to figure this out. Um, I think the uh, there's many uh, worries uh, we should have uh, with the speed, but also the um, let's say the 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 structures that are being reinforced uh, through these kinds of uh, apps. Um, and one of the things that is uh, barely discussed, uh, also not in, uh, in, in uh, on this GitHub repository, for example, is the kind of uh, infrastructure uh, it feeds and the way um, decision-making power is being uh, siphoned away to big tech companies. And that's very worrisome for public life for uh, the ability to imagine anything else than to be dependent on uh, uh, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, uh, Google. And I think that's, that's something that, uh, especially the nation states that are uh, so hastily and excitedly uh, implementing this solution, uh, should be very worried about, but seem uh, not to be able to discuss uh, amongst themselves, but also not with uh, the citizens they say to represent uh, with these kinds of uh, development. So I think, and this is hard because it's uh, it's something that has been already in place, uh, put in place uh, before Corona arrived. Uh, and we see now uh, how fast uh, uh, these types of infrastructures are being solidified and become uh, completely uh, unavoidable for anyone on on any level. And this is, uh, yeah, this is uh, something we felt we needed to um, speak back to. Um, could you just clarify a little my understanding and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm not uh, I'm not a software developer, uh, but was that the you guys are also arguing for somewhat of a middle ground and that there would be a creation of a contact tracing app um, using Bluetooth um, where the data would only be stored locally on each individual's phone. Um, and then be anonymized and sent out to a central uh, repos centralized repository uh, with aggregated anonymized data that then would match up and the local be sent out back to local authorities if somebody came into contact or uh, with extended proximity with someone who later um, tested positive for COVID-19. So it's kind of a hybrid uh, approach, but it's not centralizing the data data that um, is connected to geolocation in any way or to per other personal identifiers. Could you, is that a correct representation? And maybe Seda? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, yeah. So I think... Um, there, there's currently within the more technical community who has been working on privacy and security, these two options that are being put forth. Um, and so the what we see is on the one hand, um, so remember I said there were different, different technologists trying different designs. So this was not only in Europe, there's also a bunch of initiatives in the US uh, who have pulled together, you know, um, 
scientists and researchers who are like so-called experts on security and privacy. And indeed, the decentralized option uh, promotes itself by saying, um, you know, we're going to avoid the creation of a centralized database, which would reveal everybody's um, social graph of sorts, right? And and the social graph is, of course, based on fine-tuning Bluetooth so that we can closely track who is in the vicinity of whom. Uh, BlueTrack can somewhat do that now. It's not as precise. And so for the application, they need to make that more precise. Um, and this, the kind of centralized solutions that have been proposed would say, if you're infected, you should upload to the central server everybody who you have been around in the vicinity of or in the proximity of. Um, which, you know, computer scientists shorthand as your social graph. Uh, but if we would look at it from, you know, our everyday perspective, it could be um, people that were around you on the streets um, and then, or maybe people you went to a demonstration with or uh, people you work with, et cetera. Um, so the centralized solution would upload all that data all of this is anonymous, right? Like this is this is some of the tricks that are being, I mean, tricks in the in the computer science, privacy, and security tricks kind of way, um, uploaded to a centralized party. But the centralized models say uh, we will know the breadcrumbs kind of thing that we give you. Those are like the anonymous breadcrumbs that you spread to people around you, and they spread back to you. Um, and and then on the centralized entity, then once you give it back to them, can identify who you were in contact with, can run like a sort of risk analysis, who might have to um, get um, tested or quarantined and then send directed messages to them. The decentralized option, as you described, Khadija, is um, saying we should not have a centralized entity that gets all the social graphs. So to solve that problem, they say um, what should happen is that if somebody is infected, uh, let's say I'm infected, I would put up just my breadcrumbs that I spread into the world and package them in a certain way so that the centralized party um, can um, check numbers against them, but um, well, maybe that part is not so important. I'll move that aside. But what they'll do is they'll package it and send it to everyone, and then everybody can check on their phones if they interacted with this person or not. So the difference in one is that you put out the social graph, and the centralized authority uh, decides who was close to whom and who should now go and get tested or take certain measure, measures. Measures who should be notified of these measures that they are advised to take. Whereas a decentralized one says, no, everybody who participates in contact tracing um, should just, you know, on their phone, notice who they were close to. And then the, the, the risk analysis will be done also on the phone and the phone will give a recommendation, uh, but no further uh, data will be revealed to other parties. And you can delete all of your data from that, on, that time on um, with some constraints. Of course, you need to keep some of your data for the last days. So the, the centralized one has a problem that uh, you can imagine a state agency or whatever authority being able to see everybody's social contacts, but because they also deliver the breadcrumbs that everybody uses and gives to each other anonymously, um, they can also track people or um, give false breadcrumbs and, and cause mayhem, or they can also say, oh, we have the centralized information and here are the dangerous people or whatever, like they're de-anonymizing, they have de-anonymization facilities on their end and and they can literally do uh, social network analysis on people's movements, whereas the decentralized one removes this authority from being able to do that kind of work. But it does open um, another, let's say, space in which, uh, for example, um, 
your workplace could put out a Bluetooth antenna and register itself with a phone and collect everybody in the workplace, their breadcrumbs, and then it will be informed also if one of those people get infected because it will be seen as somebody that was in their proximity. Uh, so both, let's say, models come with uh, certain risks that are seen as important in the eyes of computer scientists. And I think they come up with a lot of other risks uh, that computer scientists or technologies might not be considering, uh, which I hope the others in the, in the discussion will maybe discuss with me. Thank you. That's that's really helpful. I just think it's important that we get grounded so that people have a sense because um, one of the things that I'm curious about is uh, I've been hearing the conversation about contact tracing apps, like among the technologists, data policy space, and then separately hearing the conversation about um, the virus and development of a vaccine in the public health space. And a lot of times they don't seem in conversation outside of... um, you know, government officials who are kind of endorsing one or the other in an attempt to seem like they have some kind of control over the situation. And my biggest question when any technology is applied to a situation, is it addressing the fundamental problem? Is it is it giving us additional information to understand community transmission of COVID-19? Is it allowing us to um, uh, flatten the curve, uh, so to speak? I mean, I saw one of the questions that was raised in regards to um, contact tracing apps is that, if uh, someone is being notifi- notified uh, that they came into contact with somebody with COVID-19, are we just shortening um, the time th- uh, that pre-symptomatic people um, from, uh, are, are being quarantined in their house rather than actually preventing the transmission itself? Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to uh, kind of the relationship between beginning with public health and beginning with the technology um, and kind of how do you think about this in relationship to other pandemics? Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, I just want to say one thing, and I think like maybe Hel- Helen should come in, um, but I think the first question we need to maybe ask is like, what is the world that we imagine to be in again, right? Like in the sense that I think that COVID-19 was brought to us by a, a hyper-globalized um, supply chain fed, you know, hyper capitalism. <laughs> and, and I think what I see, um, I, I, I think when I hear you, Khadija, I hear, uh, community concerns, right? Like I want to go out, I want to, you know, continue my life. Maybe I want to uh, continue earning money or be with my friends and family. Maybe I want my kids to get a proper education and not this fuzzy thing online. Um, but I think, I feel like we need to have a discussion as to whether these technologies are there so that we can go back to the situation which brought us this virus to begin with and and how we're going to get there. And and for me, I feel like that question is not being asked at all, right? Like um, when you hear what happens with the discussion of the app, right? Like we we've, just to kind of give you the mental model, as a technologist, we dis- assume the design of the app for a nation state, which has a government that will then promote the app in the borders, right? That now especially within Europe, but you can imagine this to be states in the US, right? Like um, there are people who live in across borders, right? And so you want the app to work also across these nation states. So we've now reproduced the nation states, we've reproduced borders and we want to cross them. And then the next thing is like, oh, we want to fly around and do whatever we want uh, and move as fast as the supply chains. and, And this app should also work there. And, and I feel like those are very different questions, right? And they all get packed into this app. And so I'll just say that and leave, leave it there and see what the others want to pick up. My excellent point. Thank you. 
Helen, did you want to speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I guess um, also going back to your um, your point, Kitty Jo, about the how communities kind of handle the transmission or how they want to kind of live their lives and make possible all the different ways of living a life and having a life. And I think that's really something that we were all thinking of um, when we actually started to write that comment was really not so much that we necessarily had those answers or even would want to propose to have them. But actually kind of saying, you know, stop, we want to put a, I think we described it as a wedge, <laughs> a kind of temporary wedge into this very fast moving discussion mm-hmm. to actually kind of make a moment to say <clears throat> what, you know, to ask people, you know, what might you want? Um, like how might communities want to manage this? How do they imagine that a technology might help or hinder? Um, how might it protect them? Um, you know, how can we actually allow those conversations to take place? Um, because really that those conversations aren't happening and there's a lot of assumptions um, that are being made about what people need or what they, they might need or what they want. Um, and so I think that's a, just a, such an important um, kind of proposal. And then how do we make space for that when already the kind of moments for gathering are really constrained by this moment? So um, it's very, very difficult for those conversations to be happening. Already, when you're not separated, it's they are difficult to have. But uh, yeah, no, excellent point. Um, it just reminded me I was part of this <clears throat> study group uh, around Robin G. Kelly's piece, um, "Solidarity is Not a Market Exchange," and he was critiquing the language of shelter in place um, because it assumes that we just have to shelter in place until we can go back to normal, just as Seda said. When the reality is that, you know, this economic system and the way in which society is organized is exactly or was organized was exactly the problem. Um, and maybe we think, need to think about shelter and revolution or shelter and change, um, different ways uh, to come together. Um, and also the name of this pa- podcast is We Be Imagining um, in an attempt to kind of this have this collective rethinking mm-hmm. of what type of world and future we want to have but that's why i think historicizing what's going on is so crucial um i think one of the ways that um states or capital or you know the way the hegemony works is also to like control what we know and what we remember and so i think the way this the coronavirus or covid19 has been framed is very much as you know a pandemic something out of control nobody has any you know idea and then there are some historical references to for instance spanish flu uh, or you know other uh, examples, but there are never any historical references to these episodes in history where they actually synchronize, where they are part of a broader history, and um, because they are potentially very transgressive moments, these are moments where also uh, a lot is being questioned, really down to the essence of uh, what am I, uh, wh- what is the, what is the worth. I have supposedly for uh, the states uh, in terms of the kind of protocols that have been set up uh, to decide who gets uh, uh, ICU uh, access to ICU, right? As a disabled person, it kind of scares the shit out of me because I'm kind of really below on that list. People are questioning all kinds of things about, for instance, age. Like, since when is it relevant to think about uh, someone's um, an intervention in someone's life being worthy only? 
below the age of what 60 like it's people are asking very uh, existential questions and this makes this moment also very transgressive people question also the order and the state of of being and historically this this has been the case with pandemics where they conflate or coincide or are mapped into onto other uh, major uh, experience such as revolutions. Um, the way that the Spanish flu is also related, for instance, to the um, the decade or, or the, the in the same years that the Russian Revolution happens, anti-colonial struggles in the Moroccan Reef, in Mexico, decolonization started to really uh, be organized and grow in India because of the British colonial uh, response and, and basically non-response uh, to the uh, Spanish uh, flu, uh, what it caused in India. So these are very historically important uh, intersections uh, that we can also learn from, not just be afraid of. We can also learn from the kind of creativity that human beings have shown in terms of helping each other, in terms of still being closed but not being uh, physically uh, closed, in terms of organizing, in terms of spreading uh, manifestos, uh, challenging powers. There's so much we can learn from. And I think that is one thing we can do is to bring back that history, to, to bring back that historical materialist perspective in basically the way you just described also how thinking about shelters can be done through three um, different prisms right and i think what can we learn actually at this moment where we are being told that uh, we don't have any agency and that the experts are going to decide and plan things for us so i think this historical i think uh historicizing the current moment is a crucial task for us uh, with these kind of radio podcasts, but also just popularizing the the, the lessons learned uh, from the from the past. I think it's something that states don't want us to do. Mm-hmm. An excellent think, excellent point, Miriam. I mean, one of oh, sorry, go ahead, Elon. Yeah, I think any crisis kind of lays bare the the structures. Just, uh, of our society. And I think that that's exactly what's happening and how we inter- interrogate it in conversation uh, with each other, but also in, in conversation between disciplines becomes incredibly important. And just kind of building off of what Elon said is that this moment has kind of laid bare um, the inequities that have long um, been rotting our society, particularly thinking from a New York City perspective, looking at Rikers Island um, and the like middle passage slave ship like conditions that people had been long forced to to live in um and even though there was a call to close Rikers Island that predated COVID-19 um they were not able to enact social distancing I think the medical director spoke out uh, about the the filthy conditions that people were forced to live in uh the governor actually had them produce hand sanitizer that they were banned from using um because it contained alcohol and then was considered a contraband Mm -hmm. item um and a lot of people were arrested there and being held on technicalities, even into the shelter-in-place order in New York City. And I think that led to a lot of despair um, about, like, what can we do in this moment? But on the flip side, uh, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, announced a couple of days ago that the prison census in, uh, in New York City is the lowest that it's been since World War II. Um, so also remembering that there, you know, when you're thinking about the anti-abolitionist movement, that this is actually a time where we can kind of create a strategy and plan to win. 
Um, and maybe this pandemic could be a moment where we could actually close prisons. Um, and that's had like a differentiated um, effectiveness across the world. I mean, you look at Ilan, uh, Iran and um, they let thousands and thousands of prisoners go. And in Sao Paulo, Brazil, prisoners actually escaped. Um, mm-hmm. But I think you mentioned a lot of historical examples, including the Spanish flu. And I think people hear about it, but they honestly don't. Could you flesh out one of those examples? And for people who are technologists or people Mm. in this space, what does it really mean to resist, especially when um, the strategies of collective action, occupying space um, are now not only unavailable, but dangerous to our health? What what does it look like um, to kind of fight for this better future and to work against neoliberalism um in the way that you you mind uh, someone else wants to no go for it i mean it's just like it's so frustrating to um i mean these are uh moments that uh i think one of your other uh guests said uh are tests moment right i mean when is something really going to be tested it's in times of crisis um and that is both for you know um solidarity like put your money where your mouth is you can't just use solidarity and all those terms as hollow phrases for uh for manifestos or for uh lefty newspapers and then actually when shit hits the fan you're actually only talking about your own uh uh, you know worries and 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 sorrows And, and and i mean i have a lot of uh understanding for people who are posting all kinds of stuff about, you know, like, uh, whatever, I'm bored, uh, I'm not going to uh, be uh, doing the so many meeting on Zoom. But if you have no space in your discourse or narrative or writing for the international aspect of what is going on, I mean, if you think you're in a bad situation, then, you know, a lot of the people, at least I know of, are in a relatively, you know, different situation compared to the countries I'm very interested in and followed and worked in Palestine, Yemen, uh, Afghanistan, and countries that have suffered from empire in the last 20 years since 9-11, for instance, that are now going to be carrying a brunt in this virus that is just unimaginable. So internationalism has to be part and parcel of the discourse you are now uh, preparing and expressing in terms of your demands for your context. That's one thing that I think that you can do. You can, nobody stops you, even if you're physically separated. Uh, nobody is stopping us from at least using one major powerful source that we have, and that is our voice. Our voice, what we write, the way we write it, that we allow our voice to be angry, you know, angry we are so angry also at the injustice and at the the also incredible uh yeah i mean i I don't have words for it when i see leaders like trump uh completely undermining even that small possibility to turn the tide uh into disaster so the anger the fury has to be heard in your voice the anger the hope the empowerment has to be felt between the lines of what you're writing nobody is uh, is not allowing us to do that that's one source of power we have so we have to think creatively when we think resistance when we think empowerment it's not just that thing with which you are 
associating uh, normal types of resistance. And this is because maybe we are conditioned to think in certain ways through a kind of, I don't know, maybe it's a privileged thing. But for me, as a person who has always had anyway problems with mobility, and so I've never really had the joy I did until I realized I was really wrecking my body, but I never really had a lot of uh, moments where I really enjoyed uh, this, this empowering feeling of going on demonstrations, on marches and being with people and demonstrating and marching because I, I couldn't, you know, physically. And so, you know, all, all kinds of uh, creative thinking uh, often comes from people on the margins, people of color who are, who are dealing with uh, a, uh, you know, colored-based prejudice in surveillance society, uh, disabled people who are dealing with uh, how to think otherwise about mobility. So a lot of creative thinking comes from the margins. But what is very crucial in that creative thinking outside the box uh, and coming up with answers about how can we uh, do still politics in this confined system is that it has to be community-based. It has to be something that is beyond the individual. I cannot, I don't, I'm not avoiding uh, your your question, but I think my point is these answers have to come from collectives. <laughs> People have to come together. I think Seda said it as well. It has to, to do also with democracy. How do we organize? Do we come together? Do we deliberate? Do we think of the, 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 the propositions and how we then test them uh, with counter arguments and then come with something collectively? Those are the questions that we need to uh, uh, ask within collectives. And that's why I'm really hoping that uh, we get our act together uh, and, and take this urgency serious. This is the fourth weekend. I, I don't know if I should say this because I don't want to add to like a disempowering discourse, but I think we need to also be honest. Honesty is crucial. This is the fourth weekend that I have not seen a major call for protest or resistance from the organized left. This is not a good sign. We really need to get our act together. I live in Britain. There is a vacuum on the left. Even after Jeremy Corbyn, who was a major sort of alternative, was lost, there still are the tools and the grassroots sources that have been organizing for months and months in the, in the process of the elections. You have the same, I think, in the States, where a lot of grassroots people were involved also with the Bernie Sanders campaigns. Those are potential resources we should use. These are the resources that we should now put in practice to indeed do, as I think Helen uh, and Femke and Seda also said, at least try to make this uh, moment, which is very tragic, also an opportunity to never go back to the system which caused it. And I think it's not a good sign that I still have not seen anything really like, you know, broad and collective coming out in the fourth weekend that I'm in, in, in self-isolation. And I hope my anger will at least you know, uh, make us think about doing this collectively. Uh, we are entitled to be tired and to be in shock, but I think four weeks, it's five weeks, it's kind of okay now, yeah? <laughs> no, but, but Miriam, I do want to, I do want to say, I mean, from my perspective, I'm not like, I mean, yes, like emotionally, ethically, ideologically, you, you know, everything that you say resonates with me. Um, but I'm not sure how do we, how, do, what does execution look like right now? What does strategy look like when we cannot hold collective space? I mean, who are the people outside having protests right now in the United States is the Donald yeah. Trump's, uh, yeah. base without yeah. masks yeah. who are saying that this was a yeah. conspiracy in a Chinese yeah. lab. Do we retweet stories about yeah. Palestine? I mean, yeah. like, seriously, what, what does activism look like for the, in this moment? And also importantly, 
um, you know, I kind of go back and forth between a computer science world and a social science yeah. world. Um, and often the two yeah. do not meet. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in a really meaningful, substantial way. So I think it's important um, that when we talk about being angry and we talk about uh, taking action, that we make real yeah. like what that looks like. And I, I'm not sure well, I what mean, that's going to be. I, mean, I, 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 I gave you a couple of examples in terms structures. of our voice and our uh, what we say and what we write. Uh, that has to do with the fact that I acknowledge we are not in a normal situation. We cannot copy-paste our normal uh, tools and practices into this situation. So we need to think differently also about the abilities that we have. But by thinking differently about the abilities we have, and of course, what the right-wing people in Michigan or even in Berlin are doing, going out to demonstrate, it's it's beyond silly you know that is not that is a kind of copy paste of like this is how we did resistance this is how we do it now that doesn't make any sense but it doesn't mean that we don't have any other agency we write we talk we uh whisper uh etc in in britain there are for instance uh uh discussions about how do we turn the clapping for the nhs into um, an act of protest this whole clapping that uh, people have come up with from really good uh, uh, positions, you know, uh, genuinely well-meaning gestures towards the health, uh, that then health sector, which then brought it into other sectors, right? But it also is uh, complacent with a way of thinking that we we think individually from our windows, the nurse and the doctor and the cleaner who are actually sacrificing their lives for us, while they shouldn't have sacrificed their lives. That is to do with the fact that the NHS has been undermined willfully by the Tories and they have been cutting the health sector uh, dramatically. Those clapping of gestures uh, of thinking should be turned into angry protests of people, uh, you know, uh, striking their pants and clapping with demands of uh, the, from the Tories that they have to change their policies towards the NHS. That is also powerful. It, just because we are not in Travalga Square and doing this in our thousands from our window doesn't mean that it has not power. I think it scares the shit out of the, the Tories and Boris Johnson if we would do that. So that's an area, why, why not? That's very concrete. I, I don't know how it's for you in, Nor- in New York, whether you have these similar uh, tactics, but surely there are uh, tactics where we can... We, where we can rebel in whatever level we have accessible uh, to our needs, but we need to agree with this collectively. I do have a question on uh, how we can rebel using um, uh, the tech sphere. It is important to address these like very systemic mm-hmm. issues, mm-hmm. but um, whenever you um, like listening to a Stanford and AI conversation, they were like, uh, Praise, um, praising Singapore and South Korea and all these East Asian countries on establishing contact tracing. But establishing mm-hmm. it um, with Western countries is establishing it under these very massive colonial empires that um, mm-hmm. I think the focus on contact tracing just kind of reifies that that empire, right? Who exactly. ends up getting tested, who has access to testing. Exactly. So how can we use um, tech in order to... Um, um, to rebel, right? Like, are we, can we focus our energy away from contact tracing and maybe towards mutual aid funding? Being that, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. some nations um, and groups like Palestine, they're not having any access to testing. Um, and so many marginalized groups don't have access. So contact tracing does nothing for them. So how can we use the access we have to support those communities? 
Yeah, and also I will just reinforce the separation between who will uh, have a life as a result of yeah. these apps and who yeah. doesn't. Mm. And this is really, we need to keep remembering that it's not even, it's not going to make the divide smaller. It's just going to make it larger. So mm. uh, on many levels, uh, on how it's going to operate, uh, but also in what uh, what powers it will confirm uh, and what powers it will take away. So I think this is really, uh, it's, it's difficult when you want a solution fast. Uh, but we need to remember this and we need to keep saying this. I mean, just to like in the, in some of the, and this is like much smaller. Uh, and so it's not directly uh, a COVID response, although it is in a way like what I see happening in, in smaller, let's say tech communities um, around me is, is an interesting mixing of uh, let's say individual help and institutional help where different like people with access to infrastructures start to provide them for other groups, uh, individuals that, for example, are, find themselves uh, in a teaching situation that's, uh, that, that needs to put them into uh, surveyed spaces, then to provide them with other alternative tools or uh, other means. Uh, people are learning together how to install these things. So there is... There is, there are practices that are much more convivial around mm. technology uh, that seem to be like. At the one hand, it's very difficult to keep faith in in that type of work, uh, seeing the 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 power and the and the and the speed by which uh, contact tracing is being uh, implemented. But at the same time, it makes me even more convinced of the importance of that type of uh, tech imaginative tech um, uh, work uh, because it's it's work that is at the is not anti-technology because this is not what what we're trying to say or what we're trying to think or what we're trying to discuss but it's trying to do technology at a scale that is um, that can uh, allow different voices in so how do you discuss uh, the consequences of of uh, these these decisions, like when you think about how uh, the gig economy works, this has this is not this is not um, this ha this has to do with the need to uh, with an infrastructure that is being built and a power a power that's being moved towards big tech com companies. So we have to be careful with uh, allowing more power to these. Uh, these uh, these forces, and we need to find other ways to live with technology than uh, installing the app that that is provided by uh, to us by uh, by others. So, I think there's ways we can make. Um, yes, we can make. Uh, we commu communicate. Uh, we we uh, get our voices out. I mean, even to the way we speak now, is. Uh, because of uh, uh, technolo te technological infrastructures and softwares that are in place that we can use. So we cannot say, uh, we could, it's not about turning away from that. It's just trying to understand how um, we confirm uh, oppression and separation and, uh, and how uh, 
there's technologies that can help us with uh, to rebel and to be uh, express our anger about uh, the world uh, and to also to figure out together like to find each other to uh, figure out together how to do things differently quite differently than they were uh, before so this is the thing also with contact tracing I think it's so much about re uh, um, coming back to the normal like the 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 normal as it was and i think uh this is uh, something we need to resist as much as we can because the normal that was before is not the normal that we should desire yeah and i think we have um you know it's also about how we can kind of be accomplices to this as well right accomplices to these other types of imaginations so um kadiji you're saying like you know what would it be to build apps for rebellion um and actually, we have the right, right? We have the right to be able to imagine something different than what the tech companies are offering us, um, whether that's the false dichotomy of contact tracing, um, whether that's um, any of the kind of things that they might have on offer. And, and how can we kind of lever the resources as well um, to be able to imagine together those other types of um, possibilities? Um, and to keep, and I think really to, you know, as Miriam's also saying, to kind of keep holding that, that we do have the right to demand something different um, from these very, very limited options um, that are being put on the table by companies like Google, by companies like Apple, Microsoft, um, whether that's for teaching and learning, whether that's for um, whether we can leave our houses or not now, or whether that's for, you know, in the future, right, how our countries are organized. I think maybe I can I can add that you know uh, or, yeah so our our timeline is that you know around four or five weeks ago um, many of the countries that we live in went into lockdown um, and really what happened is is in many ways for many of us not everyone uh, not the care workers no. <laughs> for delivery doing delivery um, but. Uh, many of us just went online. So our classrooms went online, our institutions went online, uh, our workspaces went online. Uh, for some of us, our homes went <laughs> online because we lost access to them because they were somewhere else, uh, et cetera. But I think, um, I think this was, uh, you know, coming back to our institute, um, I think um, we wanted to kind of create or develop methods and techniques to engage the computational infrastructures as represented by Amazon and Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Apple and, and a few others, uh, we wanted to imagine ways of, of um, resisting the propositions they make and imagining rebellion and many other things. And we thought we had time. We thought, you know, we know their plan is to take mm -hmm. over all infrastructures in society. They don't just want to be our computational infrastructure. They want to be able to program everything, our schools, our health system, our governments, right? And uh, our whatever, our communities, all of this fits into their program as long as you can compute, as long as you can turn it into a logistical problem uh, that then they could function, right? And in a sense, contact tracing is turning the COVID-19 care problem into a logistical one, right? Like, can we you know, optimize the way in which we, you know, provide care to those who need it, care defined in terms of like, do you have the virus and therefore could, you know, cause damage 
to a community or, or a society and, you know, quickly kind of quarantine you or take you out or give you testing or give you hopefully also care so that you can continue to live. And, and I think there's, there's a couple of things we can do. First of all, I think we can really resist the proposition by these tech companies that all of our social and political problems are, are logistical problems, right? They're not, we're not just in, in the, in the business of, uh, supply and demand, be it, you know, in the past, it was like Amazon delivers your goods, you know, t- Tinder delivers your lovers and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and now they're going to deliver you testing and quarantine. And I think we need to kind of find ways to complexify the problems and, and to resist their reduction to logistics as their solution. Um, and I think, um, you know, in terms of like fun rebellion, I think the, um, I'm I'm really surprised nobody has like tried to remove Zoom from the app stores by giving a lot of bad yeah. reviews like we heard some of the Chinese students did right like <laughs> because they were forced to do their homeworks online the shittiest form of education ever so they just you know uh attacked the app store and just gave it bad reviews and the app was removed I don't know if it you know these things yeah. can be urban myths or real I don't know uh but so I think so one is I think to resist the way in which computational infrastructures imagine themselves in our institutions and in our communities. And, mm-hmm. and it's really important to remember that computational infrastructures have within them the desire to hollow out and unbundle the institutions we have, like removing their functionality into little services that are logistical, right? And I think, you know, Zoom is a great example. It's not an educational environment at all, and it has inserted itself into the pri- as being the prime tool of online education. So I think there's that kind of resistance. And then there's the other, which is, you know, can we reimagine our scale? And can we reimagine our supply chains, right? Then I know from food justice people working here um, is, is, you know, um, saying we can't rely on supply ch- food supply chains like we did because that's what brought us um, corona in many ways, right? And and we can't, you know, deliver ourselves to care workers now and, and the vaccine later and then just go back to normal. Can we rethink or actually embrace this moment as a way to rethink our food, our supplies, and our farmers and, you know, and care? And I think in that sense, there's great potential here. Uh, but it does require, and I think it's very difficult for many people to come out of this mode that we have delegated society now to care workers and Amazon delivery workers and, and the bus drivers, but like that we are part of this transition and that we need to embrace it and take it over, take it back almost, right? Because it's happening. Yeah, and I think in those processes of taking it over, it's also about um, being kind of um, vulnerable and and open about um, what those what that taking over does like you know who who gets um you know for who and and for where and for how right so kind of never trying to imagine that we can kind of recreate the the perfect system in a way but actually trying mm-hmm. to also break through this idea of a kind of totalizing universal solution um and really kind of like holding, you know, like if we want to kind of um, unpick some of these infrastructures that we also need to be aware that the changes that we make also might have effects. And if we can be open about that discussion, then we can also try to, to do it differently. No, this is all very provocative. In a way, it, it makes me think like COVID-19's impact is the opposite of the thought experiment around autonomous vehicles. The idea that you'd have increased 
um, people moving into uh, exurbs and living further and further away from their jobs because they could continue to do work during their commute. Um, and that there would be an expectation for increased productivity during people's extended travel times. And this is now, it feels like the onus is more on the hyperlocal. Um, one of the things that I felt was very intriguing was uh, digital ethnographer Trisha Wang. Um, she did a piece in BuzzFeed uh, based off of her study from Wuhan um, that people were using uh, WhatsApp and what's the other one? We, we group, something like that. WeChat. WeChat. Um, WeChat to kind of organize their like their neighbor. It could be people would create groups that were either their neighbors or professional people within uh, that they work with within a geographically bounded area. Um, and they would use this WeChat to both like help organize like access to their local supply chain and put in like bulk bulk orders to the grocery store to ensure that they had consistent deliveries. And then um, depending on people's needs, like somebody in the group might have mobility issues or be immunocompromised. Um, and then somebody would deliver the food to them, but maybe that person could help vet uh, miss and disinformation. Mm. So they used it for a lot mm. of different things, even just mm. like uh, moral questions, kind of like if you're a single parent, are you just, you know, destined to be alone? Or do you find like a buddy family and you guys are like germ friends, you know, what to do? Um, and the cool thing about that was that there wasn't just one definitive answer. You'd kind of post a question and there'd be a spectrum of responses and people could kind of individually choose what they, you know, thought they should do based mm. on that range mm. of responses. Um, and so these, I feel, uh, very attracted to those mm. kind of responses and kind of when, when this came out in March 20th and she did a presentation with data and society. When I first heard this, I was like, this is so comforting. This is the first like pra pragmatic, concrete set of steps that I can take in the face of what feels very overwhelming. Um, and I still find it inspiring, but I have to say it also feels overwhelming that the onus is on this hyperlocal organizing. And there does feel like also like we need a state. <laughs> we need somebody that's going to be like en masse kind of disseminating tests or, dis you know, ensuring that the, the food supply continues. Um, and so I'm not I'm not sure what the answer is, but this definitely does <laughs> feel like the right set of questions. Um, and and. I just wanted to also say that Miriam, I I appreciate and like I I'm I'm angry like 95% of the time. I think I said on our last interview with uh, Andre Brock, he's so optimistic. I'm like I'm not at that stage of grief yet. Like I cycle between anger and clarity. Like, but anger can be very productive. Um, not always productive. I think that uh, once you once you allow that to gear what you're doing, uh, you. I think I don't want to sound uh, softy, uh, like uh, romantic, but I think once you allow that anger to gear what you're thinking of in terms of solutions, you inevitably almost come to uh, the ethics of justice and equality. It's very hard to to not think of of something that is very you know just and equal, uh, each according to their needs. Uh, when you let that anger about the injustice uh, guide guide you, and we're so conditioned to be to be rational and pragmatic and to be ashamed about our emotions, we're so conditioned to be calm in times of panic. No, we, we we should we should be calm in terms of how we think about our own well-being, so that we can last long. Because it's very difficult to hold stamina for long in situations like this. 
but we should uh, never be calm when it comes to thinking of uh, solutions. And when we hang up uh, from this uh, co- conversation, uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me would be to, I want to get in touch with Khadiza and ask her if she knows any local activists in her area that can actually help us understand what to do here in our area. You see, so this these type of connections and thinking outside the box can uh, be, yeah, they can, I mean, they are angry, but they can also be, uh, empowering and that's why I think we need history <laughs> we need to learn about these historical mm-hmm. and I mean the one thing I wanted to say Khadija and I, I really understand I have uh, had many conversations with people who are saying yeah but what's your solution you can't just be against the app and then not have a solution for testing etc I agree with your critique but what's the solution I think that's a very very valid question be- because it comes from uh, uh, our uh, because it comes from a worry. We're so worried how many more uh, people are going to die, and we if, if this is going to help prevent that, then why not, right? But I think that uh, what uh, else do you have? What else can we do? Uh, I think it's a very very tricky uh, question in the here and now because it means that we are still maybe not accepting that we are in a very unique moment where we simply cannot do the things we, we want to do. You know, it's it's it sounds demoralizing, but I don't mean it like that. It's like, no, we cannot come with uh, ready-made uh, answers. We need to think beyond that uh, binary. Although I do think it's a very legitimate, uh, very legitimate question that you're saying. What is your concrete answer so that we can be relevant? It's very legitimate, but I think it's also mirroring a kind of state of mind that thinks we are still, yeah, in a kind of normal situation where these things are. Yeah, openly and democratically possible for us to jump into and come with our alternatives. So that's why I, I take the lesson from Palestine. Uh, for centuries, it was clear that the pa- balance of forces was not equal and is still not equal. And the Palestinians have always also said part and parcel of our resistance is to exist, to exist just to exist, to live, and to reject. And so that is also resistance, to reject those fucking apps. To reject is also resistance. <laughs> and, and to not be proactive, and to not be productive. What do you say? I reject. <laughs> I, I, I know it sounds like, a, um, it sounds uh, evasive. It sounds cheap. Oh, you're just avoiding responsibility. No, I've seen from history, and I can we can see it from people resisting now, just to stay put. To reject is also very hard. It's very hard because it makes us feel powerless. But sometimes that's what you need to do. <laughs> no, preach. I no, I completely I completely <laughs> I'm sorry, I mean it's like it's so contradictory, isn't it? No, I'm, it's a contradiction. I'm, I'm, I'm not often in the position. I'm not often in the, in the position where somebody's telling me that okay. we should reject things. That's kind of like... <laughs> 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 yes, personality. It's almost like we it planned it. No, it's... It's just super important to find other practices with technology. Uh, so that means, like, this is why we go on about expertise. It cannot be just the experts, the technological experts that mm. tell us how to do this, because this will mm. define our lives. So we do need to figure out other ways of learning, other ways of building infrastructures, mm. other ways of using stuff. Uh, because otherwise, it's it's and, and we're handing over. We're handing over. We have hand, handed already so many things over. 
And I think that's part of the the tiredness and, mm. and panic and uh, and uh, frustration right now. It's like we hand over education, we hand it over institutions, we hand it over uh, decision making processes for countries. We hand over. So now, what are we going to do to? Uh, um, claim not even claim it back, but to uh, demand uh, another life with technology in this world. And this, it, like, I hear us talk, and I think, like, it sounds like we're completely, um, like, when you see the the type, the tweets, and the and the and the news articles about contact tracing, it seems like really there's no other option. Yeah. There's not even a consideration of it not being implemented. We're we're just being sucked into mm. a discussion of how are we going to do it and who is going to do it? Because don't forget, there's a lot of competition going on right now and who is going to run with the best solution. So we, we sort of forget that, that it's not, let's say, this cannot be the only way to respond to something that will be with us for years. So we cannot, I mean, we cannot just be uh, locked to these whatever apps uh, as a way to decide who who gets to move and who who, who can't. I mean, this is this, we really cannot accept that. So we need to uh, work urgently, but not mm. too fast <laughs> on <laughs> other ways of, of being with technology. And I think this is what this um, emerging institution is about. <laughs> Is to we just had to kind of jump into public uh, before we even uh, had started, which kind of funny was kind of fun, kind of funny. But um, this is something we have been working on for two years now or more. Is to try and make a situation. I mean, we all have in our own practice been working on it. I think uh, for years and years. But we like more recently we started to see that we needed to pull together our forces in order to be much more visible and legible as a place that could somehow speak about resisting that automatism. And so now now here we are, like without having, you know, we're, we don't have a website. We don't, we're not, uh, let's say, we, we just appeared. Uh, but I think that's also mm. kind of funny uh, because we think it's really important that, that there's places that we build places uh, where people from with different relations to social complexity can be mm. taken serious when it comes to technological practice. Yeah, and here, here as well, I think, um, you know, I, I see that as an institute, we're, we're kind of interested in what Abdul Malik Simone describes as like a peripheral politics. So mm. perhaps the kind of politics that's not always about responding to what the centralized technology techno science is doing but then it's really interesting in terms of these times in the covid times because you're kind of thrown into a moment where it seems like the only um, technologies or the only situations that you can respond to are those kind of um, those perceived central ones from the government or from these technology companies and i think here like maybe it's really um, kind of useful for us also to think with um, you know, to think again, like historically and think about the kind of communities, um, the queer communities and the ways in which they kind of dealt with this in the HIV um, epidemic. Because really, in a way, like those communities um, and queer people were kind of became defined, you know, as a like, you know, as something 
as something toxic, as something infectious, as something problematic. And actually, instead of continuously fighting that kind of mainstream mm. um, recognition of, of or that, that mainstream description of, of themselves like that, actually, as queer communities, we, you know, we actually developed our own kind of um, uh, practices, our own kind of resistances that were both kind of joyful, but also meant that we existed in other ways than just a kind of a number or a patient. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a way in which we can develop these other types of peripheral politics, which aren't necessarily about um, the, but kind of entering into the world as a statistic around, you know, that's developed through COVID. <laughs> Just giving a moment of silence. That's a lot of, that's a lot of thoughts there. No, I, f- <laughs> I, I feel you. I mean, I want, I would like you guys to solve the pandemic. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and racism and misogyny and neoliberalism yeah. in the course of this episode. Uh, I'm kind of disappointed that you have not. Um, <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Um, no, but I think you know. Look, the conversation is messy. Uh, you know, I I am angry. I'm frustrated. I. Um, understand a lot of what you guys are talking about in terms of like the austerity politics that was married to automation prior to COVID. You know, a lot of things paved this road and there's not going to be any easy fix despite what, you know, kind of the tech companies would like to sell us or what I would want in this moment. Um, you know, some of the things I'm just thinking about, is there a different way, Is there? can we form a different kind of commons mm-hmm. where people who are frontline healthcare professionals who are privacy researchers and who are home health aides can kind of come together mm-hmm. to grapple with these questions. I think it's important um, in the ways that Miriam said that we take an internationalist lens when we write and we speak, but I also think that a lot of care work goes into curating those kind of convenings and creating a space where people who are um, diverse, you know, racially or otherwise, you know, feel mm-hmm. safe to speak um, and feel that they're when they speak that it has meaning and that it will be treated with dignity. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that was always work, and now the work mm-hmm. is just different mm-hmm. digitally. So those are just some of the things that I'm I'm thinking through, um, and I'm really excited about your institute, and I'm happy that we kind of <laughs> ra- came back there in the end. I want to be <laughs> mindful of everyone's time as we're approaching the hour and fifteen minute mark. Um, and I would like each of you to end with a, a comment, if you would like. And then also kind of our tradition is to share a recommendation of mm. something that you're reading or you're watching or you're listening to. It can be on topic or off, um, but that we could share with our, our listeners. I know it's awkward. No one can see each other. Do you want me to call on you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we start with uh, I'm just coming going in the order that I see you on my screen is Helen um, I guess I could start with my my comment of something that I'm reading at the moment um, and it's a chapter from Alexis Pauling Gums um, which is called Black Feminist Calculus Meets Nothing to Prove a mobile homecoming project rich, ritual towards the post-digital um, and it's a chapter about um, a project um, that she did. Um, but I think what's really amazing about it is she's really trying to think about a different type of uh, calculation and mathematics and evaluation, um, something that's very different from the one that we've been taught. Um, 
And um, I think, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing read for these times. Thank you. Stanley? Myself. Uh, oh, I was not ready for that. <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> planning on listening from um, the speakers. I think right now I'm reading Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. Um, and I just think it's um, a super, super fitting um, uh, book to read at this time. And also looking at the different characters, the roles that they play, the uh, Black feminist lens that we can take towards this. I also love, I can't remember who said this, but this idea of... Uh, uh, connecting this to the AIDS crisis and possibly queering our um, use of technology. And um, I love that we have so many affective technologies that allow us to use our voice, as we've been mentioning. But um, I also love pairing that with the ability to stop all use of technology in order to find queerer ways to establish and implement new technologies outside of what we've been used to. Thank you, Stanley. Miriam? Oh, yeah. It's so funny because I've uh, just finished uh, uh, reading Kindred by Octavia Butler, and there's this passage where, yeah, hey. where she goes, I mean, it's... it's uh, Is it the graphic sorry? novel version? Is it the no, graphic the, novel the version? Novel. Um, I think it, it's the 78 novel. But she goes back in time, and uh, she is... Uh, there's a scene where she, she kind of realizes that something has been, you know some illness and then she realized this is malaria how come these people don't know that, <laughs> that this is airborne and you know these are you know and it's like so fascinating like how you know if we could turn back time if you could intervene across centuries and say oh god there was this time when there was this coronavirus remember and then they didn't know and there was this whatever and whatever and it's and that's why it's novel that's why it's fantasy it's it's fantasy because it's not how it goes the, the how it really goes is the the hard you know every day and i think you're so right khadija it's so confusing it's so mixed it's so uh, all over the place but I think even sometime we will go back to this podcast and we will listen and we will think whoa man we were talking about <laughs> everything and nothing why because we are in the middle of it we are in the middle of it we are not in a position mm. to reflect we are like blah 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 and all over the place because this is actually the moment we're in you know and this, this makes it so different from any other mm. debate and discussions I've had Definitely. Um, yeah, I just feel like you're 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 in my head, Miriam. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> I'm gonna call you later for a therapy Don't session. Tell me that all of this. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the research before this podcast. You're like, I know, I I'm attuned to her emotional space right now. Uh, Seda. Right. Um, so I think. Um, I'm rather consumed by um, social media of all sorts, including my mom, who has been um, told to send me funny stuff about COVID-19, uh, which she's doing really well. So I'm getting a lot of nice uh, stuff from Turkey and the Middle East uh, of COVID-19 humor, which I would love to share with you. Um, let me know if just mail me afterwards. Uh, but I've also been looking at a lot of recent articles and and one conversation that I've been having with uh, another friend of the Institute, mm. Nadia Fadil, uh, is, is the way in which the, the, the war on COVID-19 is a continuation of, of the mm -hmm. war on terror. Um, and mm -hmm. we had just been discussing that. And, you know, we're already talking about front lines, uh, 
you know, people say it's a war, you know, we're, we're using war terminology on, on all fronts. Um, and so today I found a piece by Jathan Sadowski, um, and it was called The Authoritarian Trade-Off. Uh, and I kind of appreciated the fact that um, this person was actually explicitly making the connection between those two things. So I don't have a... Um, a very um, uplifting mm-hmm. thing to read, except my mom's <laughs> posts about COVID nineteen. But I think this piece, uh, <laughs> which you know, Miriam and Helen, I have a WhatsApp um, mm-hmm. channel. Femke um, continues <laughs> to resist smart smartphones, whatever that means, and has no WhatsApp. Um, and so we've been sharing all sorts of uh, lovely um, COVID nineteen humorous bits, but. Yes, if you want something uh, that wants to look at the continuation of certain things and maybe also think about how they're different, right? Like, it's very easy to say, oh, this is just the same thing as war on terror. Um, I think it's very interesting to think about the fact that, you know, war on terror, at least for my work, uh, was before the cloud. And so mm-hmm. how has the cloud infrastructures um, changed the ways in which governments and co- companies and other entities um claim power how has it maybe also opened up pockets for us to act uh and so in that sense i think it's that's my recommendation <laughs> thank you you're not mandated to happiness um so okay, i still appreciate your recommendation okay <laughs> um Femke? Uh, yes um maybe it's not so much like a reading to share but just maybe just an example of a, like a really small modest group of people that that is working on infrastructures uh on infrastructures between them uh, in let's say different cities in europe mainly um where they're trying to pull together uh more let's say pro uh, free software approaches to much more small and and uh intricate like self-made infrastructures uh trying to learn together how to uh, how to set up servers how to do streaming in different ways how to make radio how to but then also how to make radio plays and i'm really um uh, like they call it uh digital digital solidarity networks which is a nice play of like it's both a solidarity between people and like just what they like finding ways to exchange between them and finding out what they need, but it's also a solid, like it's it's also a solidary infrastructure mm. in a way, like technical technical inter- infrastructure for hosting files, for uh, figuring out how to do teleconferencing in in different ways, or how to uh, actually get your get your hands into that. And I'm uh, uh, yeah, I'm very. Um, busy with that like to to try and follow and support and and think with uh, these groups uh, and to understand also how we need a thinking on uh, different levels at the same time not just local not just global uh, not just individual not just uh, collective it's all of that at the same time Uh, and i think that's the the challenge for now is how we can uh, try to think practices that can go across not just disciplines, but also different scales uh, at the same time. Ilan, I'm going to try to pass the mic to you. Um, can you hear me? Some tech- yeah, success. Right, yeah, this has hour. been stressful. I've wanted They're to there. talk so many times during this podcast and have been unable to. Um, yeah, I've been watching a show called Tales from the Loop. Um, 
it's science fiction. It's kind of an anthology series. Each episode follows kind of a different character in this small town. I think a lot of sci-fi, especially in film and television, focuses on these like massive world building and um, you know telling these giant stories, maybe dystopian, maybe not. But like this show follows these like like intensely intimate interactions between characters in this one small town. Uh, and it's beautifully shot, and uh, it's a nice bit of escapism. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I have one on topic and one escapism mm. recommendation. One is I've been watching or I'm reading on Twitter this uh, cartoon about DP3T, uh, I think by Nick Case, Nikki Case. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, anyway, he made it uh, for the comments. Um, and I'll and I'll add that to the show notes. And the second thing is that I read all of this stuff about surveillance and COVID nineteen all the time, and it's not helpful to my sleep. So I have gone down this uh, rabbit hole of romance podcasts, um, which I erroneously assumed was like a very frivolous way to spend your time, uh, but I found like um, the format of romance to be really compelling. It makes you think about what kind of relationships do you want to have? What are the ways in which people feel neglected? I don't know. I, I knew nothing about this domain whatsoever. Uh, so I had, I'm listening to this podcast called shelf love a romance novel book club by Andrea Martucci. And I've learned so much about something that I completely Ooh. dismissed, uh, which maybe says a lot oh, about I love me. it. See, Sounds Miriam, good. Getting my whole psychological profile here. <laughs> in any way it's a lot more comforting than yeah. like reading ai white papers before you go to bed um and my sleep has greatly improved uh so on that note this is wow we've gone for an hour and 25 minutes this is april 19th 2020 episode number five of the we be imagining podcast um yeah. and thank you guys all for for coming goodbye goodbye thank you for